Well, if you would, take your Bible and let's go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And we are in for a treat tonight, uh, as we are every time we meet together as the church, meeting together with the church, to open up the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to sit under the Word of God. And uh, I'm just so thankful that we can look into God's Word together. And tonight, we're looking at the cross from the book of Psalms. Amazing. Psalm 22, you have the outline there in front of you. The title of the study is The Prophecy of Messiah's Crucifixion and Kingdom. I want to read all of Psalm 22 so I can set it before you. This is a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. 
I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before the majesty of your word. And we acknowledge that we ought to take off our sandals, as it were, because this is holy ground. To gaze upon our Savior at Calvary. And to look upon the blood that was poured out and the death that he died and the atonement that he accomplished for us. For us. Would you lift our eyes heavenward to behold our great Savior? Would you increase our love for him? Our humility before him? And our worship of him. Thank you, Lord, for this chapter in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. J.C. Ryle said this, if you were to take away the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible would be a very dark book. He's right. Because what we are looking at in Psalm 22 is the most profound period in all of human history. It is the preeminent hours that the world has ever known. It is the, we might say, the most petrifying hours in all of history, which we sang from the hymn earlier. What is it? It's when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Now, if you and I were to survey the four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really, by and large, they give very little detail about the physical abuses of the crucifixion event. Now, they, they talk about what happened around the crucifixion, but, but there's not a lot of detail about crucifixion itself. Uh, The book of Isaiah gives a lot of theology about the cross, as we looked at in chapter 53. But if we look at Psalm 22, we might say that this is the chapter in the Bible that gives so much detail about the human indignity of crucifixion. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, said it well when he said, Psalm 22 is the best description of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. It is a great and a humbling and yet a glorious portrait of the crucifixion. Now, you know this. 
But I want to read a little bit of Matthew chapter 27 and just listen. I'm going to skip around a little bit in the crucifixion narrative, but I want, I want you to hear what the New Testament gospel record says by way of introduction, and then we'll work through the psalm. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 29, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on Jesus's head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, and they took the reed and began beating him on the head. After they had mocked Jesus, they took the scarlet robe off of him, and they put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him... They divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and then sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. There were two robbers crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And all those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying he saved others, but he cannot even save himself. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then some of the bystanders said, Let us see whether Elijah is going to come to save him. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In what I just read in Matthew 27, there are many allusions back to Psalm 22. What happened at the cross It was prophesied in Psalm 22. We might soberly sing the words of the well-known hymn, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. This is the psalm of the cross. This is the psalm of the cross. And what I want you to know, Psalm 22 is the beginning of a trilogy. Psalm 22 is the suffering. Psalm 23 is the shepherding. Psalm 24 is the sovereignty and the kingship of our Christ. This psalm, Psalm 22, is all messianic. It is all messianic. It is all prophetic. It is all pointing to Christ. Biblical 
Prophecy is a legitimate genre of scripture. It is divine, supernatural, foretelling, and decreeing of the future. The psalm, Psalm 22, is going to prophesy the crucifixion and the kingdom of our Messiah. And you have the outline there in front of you, and I I want to make it very simple so that it will be memorable. There's a lot of details, and to be honest, we can't look at all of them tonight. But I want to show you, number one, your Messiah's rejection. And then I want to show you, second of all, your Messiah's reign. And I hope that as you leave here tonight, and even preparing us for the prayer meeting, we will be in awe of our Savior. And we will be yearning to pray and praise our Savior. That we will leave here saying, wow, what a Savior we have. So let's begin, verses 1 to 25. I want you to see your Messiah's rejection. Your Messiah's rejection. In no ambiguous terms, these verses don't speak of somebody in pain. They're not talking about David in illness. These are verses that are pointing to someone who's being executed by crucifixion. That's the meaning of these opening verses. I remember in seminary coming across, I was writing a paper on crucifixion, and I came across this by the Roman writer Cicero. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but from his very thoughts, his eyes, his ears, don't even talk about the cross. Why? It was so horrible. It was so bloody. It was so defaming and degrading and humiliating. And yet Psalm 22 is going to prophesy in stunning detail what happened when Jesus was crucified. You know verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what makes the cross the cross. That God the Father abandoned in the intimate relational sense the Son of God on the cross because God poured out His wrath upon the Son. You know the last verse of the psalm as well. Because the very last verse of the psalm tells us that God's righteousness would be declared to a people who will be born. And what's the summary of it all? That it is finished would be a legitimate way to translate that from the Hebrew. It's an amazing, remarkable psalm. I think, based upon the first and the last phrase of Psalm 22, that that is a clear proof that Jesus meditated on one primary chapter of the Bible that carried him through the cross, and it was Psalm 22. He knew it by heart. He memorized it. He, he quoted verse 1 on the cross, my God, my God, my God. And then he quoted the last phrase on the cross, it is finished. And the whole thing from beginning to end, it's prophesying that very event as he's hanging on the cross. He is being carried through the whole crucifixion event by meditating on scripture. We should do that as well. Well, the opening verses of Psalm 22 are all about the rejection. They're all about the anguish of the man who would be crucified spiritually, emotionally, physically. He was rejected. There's nothing funny about this. 
There's nothing clean about this. There's nothing PG about this. Crucifixion was something that would would bring a queasy feeling to all of our stomachs if we thought about it rightly or saw it visually. Consider the Messiah's rejection, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could talk about theology for endless hours here, but let me just ask you to ponder this. Jesus was forsaken relationally by his Father, so that you might be received relationally by God as your Father. It's amazing, amazing love. That something that for all of eternity past, he only knew intimate relationship with his Father, perfect joy, and yet now that intimate relationship is severed. The Trinity is not severed. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. He didn't stop being God, but the intimate relationship was severed for you. We see the rejection of the Savior in verse 2. He cried by day, but God didn't answer. And by night, he had no rest, which I think means the darkness that came over the land. Verse 3, but God is holy. He is enthroned on the praises of Israel. He acknowledges in these opening five verses the spiritual anguish that he underwent on the cross. He was spiritually forsaken by his father. He cried out to God, and yet his father turned his back on the son. He was abandoned by the father, so you would never, ever know that abandonment. But then we come to verses six and following. Notice the emotional pain. Notice verse 6, Jesus said, but I am a worm. Now there's something really interesting here. You know the book of John. You know the seven I am statements. I am the door. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the true vine, the resurrection, the life. I am. Did you notice in verse 6, here's another I am. I am a worm. I am a worm. Here is an I am statement where Jesus felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, totally powerless and passive while crushed, unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. It's almost as if the psalmist here is selecting the weakest of creatures and when it's trodden upon its writhing, quivering flesh. It is devoid of all strength. A worm, a worm, a worm. This points to Messiah. He's a worm. A reproach of men despised by all the people. Notice in verse 7, this is fulfilled in the Gospels. All who saw me sneer, they mock, they revile. That happened with the crucified criminals. It happened with the Elders, the chief priests, and the Jewish leaders, and it happened with all the bypassing travelers. Jesus is reproached. Verse 8 is even quoted in Matthew 27. Let him be delivered by God because God delights in him. Let God deliver him. They're mocking Jesus. They're reproaching him. Skip down to verse 11. Notice how the Messiah is alone in his rejection. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Christian, hear that. You can't say that because God is there to help you. But in those three hours on the cross, Jesus did not have any help. He was forsaken. He did take the wrath of God. He was disfellowshipped from his own father. There was none to help and none to deliver. There is no help given. Even verse 12. Notice how outnumbered the Savior was. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Oh, the images here are mighty animals. Bulls, verse 12. Look at verse 13. Roaring lions. Look at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. And then verse 21 talks about those who are the lions and the wild oxen. Here's what the psalmist is prophesying. When people reject God, they act like bloodthirsty animals. We see it in our day, and it happened at the cross with how they treated the Savior. Outnumbered, rejected, Hounded by the bloodthirsty animals. Verse 14, another verse that points to the rejection of our Messiah. He said, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Notice, they're not broken, but they're out of joint. And that was, in a horrifying way, the design of crucifixion as a form of execution. It did not break bones but you were disjointed in every possible way. He was beaten. He was disjointed. And then in verse 15, because of that, he said, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. That's fulfilled in John when Jesus said, I thirst, I thirst. He was parched, dehydrated, difficult to speak. By the way, Don't miss the end of verse 15. Who is the one doing the work at the cross? You have lay me in the dust of death. Who's the one who's actually accomplishing Calvary? It's God. This is the words of Messiah speaking to God. This is God's doing. This is like Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What made Calvary? Calvary is what God the Father did to God the Son on the cross. It wasn't what people like us did to the Son. It's what God did to the Son. And then amazingly, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a means of execution, verse 16, you see it there in your Bible at the end of verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote this and there was no crucifixion at his time. They didn't pierce. It wasn't until hundreds of years later. This is the precision of our God. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. 
pierced, pierced, pierced. Christian, maybe we ought to take a Selah for a moment and just pause. Consider the, the bloody wounds of your Savior. Consider the fleshly beatings that your Savior took. Ponder the divine abandonment that your Savior really experienced. Consider the soul-crushing anguish of Jesus on the cross, spiritually, emotionally, physically, for you and for me. And as if, as if that wasn't enough, Look at verse 18, and so much more could be said with all of this, but in verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. That's what they did in Matthew 27. He was crucified naked, humiliated, shamed, fully fulfilled in Christ. All of this. This is your Savior. This is your Savior. May we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, I want to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. May we say with Paul in Galatians 6, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our, of our Savior. In Ephesians 2, 16, God is the one who reconciles us together in one body to God through the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross. One Puritan said this, God, who spares all other men, did not spare his own son. And God did not spare his own son so that he might be able to spare you. What a savior. What a God. What a plan. What a substitution. And all of these verses speaking of the rejection of our Messiah. You have in your outline there some, some helpful ways that we can apply this because it's one thing to know about crucifixion. But as you and I are, as it were, there at the foot of the cross, and there we are hearing about what our Savior went through at Calvary, Number one, if you and I understand the cross, we ought to be humbled by our Savior's love. Number two, you and I ought to be thankful for divine propitiation. What's that big word, propitiation? The anger of God has been satisfied. Third, you and I, you and I, as we understand the cross, we are forgiven an incalculable and unpayable debt. I mean, millions of sins, infinite eternities, you and I deserve in hell under God's wrath. And Jesus, in a majestic and divine way, took it all in three hours on the cross. Fourth, you and I understand the cross. You and I should be grieved at the insults and mockings and revilings of unbelievers, that they would revile our Savior, that they would take His name upon their lips in such a profane way, that we would be grieved at that. 
And we who understand the cross, number seven, we ought to be eager to proclaim that to others. Oh, to to never back down, to never be shy, to never be timid, to never be scared. Your Messiah was rejected. But you know what? I think the psalm continues in a prophecy, not only looking ahead in David's time, not only looking ahead to the Messiah's rejection, but also looking ahead even still to the Messiah's second coming and kingdom, his reign, his kingship. Maybe it's a long commentary on Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant, all the nations shall be blessed through Israel and her seed, the Messiah. Amazing hope when God said in Isaiah 66, I will gather all the nations and they will come and see my glory. Amazingly, the crucifixion prophesied and fulfilled in stunning detail. So it is with the rest of the psalm. Prophesied and it will be fulfilled in stunning clarity and detail. And and when we look now at verses 25 and 26 to the end, these are phrases of praise, phrases of worship, phrases of worldwide, global, future praise of our Lord. Look with me, if you would, let's just skip down to verse 26. The afflicted will eat and they will be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. The nations, the peoples, will turn to the Lord. All the families of the earth will gather and worship the Lord. It's language of Genesis 12, of Isaiah 19, of Isaiah 66. The future earthly millennial kingdom, when Jew and Gentile will gather around the world and the families will praise the sovereign king. Well, how could that happen? Look at verse 28. Here's the explanation. The kingdom belongs to the Lord. And he rules over all the nations. What a savior. There's coming a day when all the nations of the earth will be under the domain of Christ the king when he rules them with a rod of iron. Revelation 12.5, Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, God will establish him on Mount Zion and he will be king over the world. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It'll be told to the generations to come. They will come and declare God's righteousness to a people who will be born. It's done. He did it. The work has been done. It is finished. The whole plan of redemption. The debt's have been paid. This is language very similar, if you want to jot this down, to Psalm 72. 
Solomon wrote Psalm 72, and he wrote that about a, a son, a descendant who would rule over the world. And all the nations and all the kings would come and they would bow down and they would pray to and they would honor the king who would rule over the world in righteousness. Psalm 72 is an amazing prophecy of the coming kingdom. That's what he talks about here. What a prophecy. What a prophecy. Psalm 22 is one of those chapters where you have to say, could this really have been written before the fact? It's so precise. But that's what our God does, isn't it? I want to show you this. Go to 1 Peter 1 as we close. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing to believers and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because you're born again to a living hope. And he talks about how you're protected for eternity. You, you have an inheritance that'll, that'll never, ever perish or be undefiled. Never will it fade away. As we close, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time a better rendition from the Greek, a better translation is not what person. They knew the person. They knew he was Messiah. They wanted to know what time. They wanted to know the circumstances. They wanted to know the kind of season. They, they, they weren't looking at the person. They know he was coming, but they didn't know the time. They wanted to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within, within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. Do you see that? That's our psalm. The sufferings of our Messiah and the glory to follow. Praise God that we do have a Savior who was rejected for us. But praise God, we have a King who will reign over us as well. He is a good King. And back to the psalm. You know, praying through it, you think through, well, how, how, do you, how do you apply such a transcendent and a lofty and a theological text? In your outline, you see the three helpful admonitions. They come right from Psalm, uh, verse 23. We are to praise the Lord. We are to glorify the Lord. And we are to stand in awe of our God. Church family, let's do that together. As we leave here, let's praise the Lord. When you go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow, glorify the Lord. As you're going back through your notes and you're reflecting on Psalm 22 and you're thinking about this Psalm tomorrow as you're at work and you're driving and you're exercising and you're going back to Psalm 22, stand in awe of our God. What a great king. What a great Savior, and what a great gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Savior who loved us, and the Savior who died for us, and the Savior who is returning for us, and the Savior who is the King over all kings. Oh, we worship and praise and bow before your glorious majesty. Thank you for dying for us, so that we might live with you 
forever. In Jesus' name.